The year is 1770, a time of change, a year on the cusp of the modern world, a year in which those who would help to shape that world were born, from the philosopher William Hegel and pioneering inventor Sarah Guppy to among the most beloved of classical composers, Beethoven. In America, tragedy in Boston sowed the seeds of a revolution, while in Europe, the last king of France, Louis XVI, wed Marie Antoinette. And in the United Kingdom, James Cook set sail for his first voyage aboard the Endeavour, setting in motion events that would shape among the biggest of works, a nation. In April that year, those who had called this land home for many thousands of years sighted the white sails of a tall ship off the coast of Kamei, what Europeans would come to call Botany Bay. Upon landing, Cook and his men encountered two warriors of the local Gweagle people. The encounter was violent. One of the warriors was wounded and dropped his shield on the beach. In the British Museum in London, behind glass, is a shield that came to be known as the Gweagle Shield. Bearing the apparent scars of that encounter, it is an object shrouded in mystery and legend. How much do we really know about this object? How did it end up in the museum? And how has its history developed over time? In this episode, Dr. Maria Nugent from the ANU School of History takes us back to 1770 to reveal more about this object and those fateful events it represents. Welcome to Works That Shape the World. retelling of any episode it can be difficult to know where to begin the story but in general I think it's vital and important to begin the account the account of this episode this 1770 episode earlier than is usually the case the convention as we know is to telescope the action to Cook and his men stepping ashore I prefer to leave them lingering on the water for as long as possible by the time the opening to the bay now known as Kamebot Bay was sighted the endeavour had been wending its way up the coast for about 10 days, hugging quite close to land and observing the environment uh, and people and signs of people. Cook had been looking for anchoring places, but without much success. Reading the journal from Point Hicks to Botany Bay is to read a litany of hopes dashed and desires deferred. By the time the opening to the bay was reached, uh, a couple of unsuccessful attempts to land had already been made but stymied by a leaky boat on one occasion and then repelled by waves beating ashore on another. And so Cook's relief was palpable when he realised one morning that the endeavour was abreast of the entrance to a large and sheltered bay. And he wrote in his journal, at daylight in the morning, uh, we discovered a bay. And he said, uh, I resolved to go with the ship. And so in preparation, sent a sounding boat and I think it is that resolution that he has that I resolved to go with the ship, that character of sort of steely resolve, which we really need to bring to the fore when we analyse um, the later event of so-called first landing, what emotions 
uh, were motivating and driving Cook that day, that morning. Now it was, as some of you who have read the journals will know, a terribly interesting morning, particularly for the men in the sounding boat, because they had a series of interactions uh, with local people who were on the northern headland. Um, but, which, but this is often overlooked in subsequent storytelling about Cook's coming ashore. A number of Indigenous men on the North Head were very engaged, already prepared for the ship's arrival, and they shouted and remonstrated, showing uh, their spears and uh, engaging with the men in the sounding boat. And so Cook and his men certainly had a foretaste of what to expect when they did eventually attempt to land uh, later that day. So over the next few hours, the endeavour made its way into the bay and at noon, the ship's clocks ticks over to a new date because time was being measured from noon to noon, but Banks's calendar stays on the 28th. That slowness of time, the stretched out hours, I think is also important to keep in mind, given that subsequent storytelling about the landing works to make all of the action seem swift and momentous and decisive, but it's languid determined by rhythms of sailing and winding. Eventually, the endeavour pulls up or drops anchor well into the bay and towards its southern side. And that means away from the northern headland where displays of physical strength and intense curiosity had already been witnessed. And then everyone on the ship sits down to lunch. There's a sense reading the journals that there's a period of, sort of quiet suspension. Some local men fishing in canoes continue to go about their business unmoved by the ship. The British sailors turn their attention to the southern shore where they see only an old woman and some children collecting sticks. The men who've been fishing come onto the beach and they too seem to sit down to have a meal. Uh, and so there's this kind of moment of shared, but distant, I suppose, eating. And then around 3 p.m. European time, the action begins. And it is the start of an episode that later on in colonial Australia uh, will be told over and over and over and over again, including today. Becoming an allegory for birth, beginnings, history and time, death, destruction, possession, dispossession, imperial might and right, myths about destiny, benign colonisation, sovereignty and so on. And we can go on and on there as well about what it's come to mean and represent. That mode of storytelling wipes out, I think, everything before the earlier encounters and the observations which I have just described. And it wipes out the knowledge that Cook has already acquired, how that's influenced the decisions he has made about when and where to attempt to land. That all sort of drops away. There's not much context when this epi episode becomes the stuff of symbolic myth. So stated by lunch, Cook surveys the scene and decides to make an approach to the southern shore. But it is Banks who reveals the reasoning, writing in his journal, that they were hoping that they would offer, uh, that they would regard them little attention and would offer little resistance. The intention to get ashore, though, was non-negotiable. Cook had resolutely made up his mind and he'd chosen what he'd hoped would be the easiest route. And so what unfolds is I'm sure, again, everyone knows uh, fairly well, particularly, and you know it uh, particularly well if you've been to an Australian school any time before the 1970s, is a 15-minute standoff in which the two boats carrying the armed landing party make their way to the shore, even as they are resisted or repelled uh, by, the two, by two men, one young and one old. 
who come onto the beach brandishing spears and yelling out. It's not a surprising action given what had happened in the morning. Impatient to have his way, Cook fires his musket once in the air and then once towards the men. They do not retaliate at that point, although they are armed with spears. When one man is hit in the leg with small shot, which temporarily stuns him and his companion, the wounded man goes back up behind the beach and comes back carrying a shield. And let's call it the Gweagle shield, since the two men are Gweagle. So the assumption on the part of the British sailors is that he has retrieved the shield to defend himself, but I don't think we really fully understand his motivation for grabbing it at that particular point. Nor, I think, do we really understand how he intended to use it, although it's a question worth plumbing further. When were shields used? Under what conditions? Who by? What were the rules of engagement or punishment of combat that governed their use and their effectiveness? What also might that observed action of running back to get a shield suggest about how this event was being interpreted by one or both of the men on the beach? We know what the British thought, both Cook and Banks describe it as a defensive weapon, and that it was the only one they saw during their entire time on the Australian coast. The men they saw as they went up the coast, both in uh, sort of around Endeavour River and also around Botany Bay, uh, did not carry shields with them, only spears and spear throwers. So when I got around to closely reading and rereading the voyage journals, which I did initially in the early 2000s, for a commissioned contextual history of Botany Bay National Park, which included what was still known then as Cook's Landing Place. I slowly came to the realization that it was the momentary pause in the violent advance when the man went to grab A or his shield that allowed the landing party to scramble ashore. They took their opportunity and whatever was about to happen with the shield in play, I think was interrupted and subverted. So we sort of lose uh, we lose a kind of sense about what might, how that shield might have been used. A whole other scenario opened up with the landing party out of their boats and onto the rocks. And it's worth underlining that it was only at that point that the two Gweagle men threw their spears and threw them into the thick of the crowd, but without injuring any. So that's the first storytelling part of this presentation. Uh, what I'd hoped to convey by it is that here is a whole set of encounters and interactions actions and reactions, objects and observations, gestures and words, assumptions, precedents, expectations that are rich in meaning, ripe for analysis and still open to interpretation. They are obscure and um, perplexing to be sure, but not completely opaque. And that is the creative and imaginative work that allows us, I think, to radically rethink both the event and the history's claims and myths that have been spun from it. So just as this episode was preceded by intriguing moments, it's also important that we don't forget that a whole week followed, equally replete with activity, including the activity, I think, and, and which I stress in my book, Feigning Indifference, but also really managing uh, the presence of the sailors um, as they are in Gweagle country. And the fact that there is really no other explicitly violent episode, I think, is a testament to the way in which they managed to choreograph the sailor's presence. That too, I would say, and I've been saying for some time now, is too quickly dismissed as uneventful and uninteresting. So talking about it a lot and uh, taking up this invitation has partly been motivated by frustration with the way in which this so-called 
landing or we might spin it around and call it um, entering uninvited event that still I think holds its secrets or mysteries, its unanswered questions has been reduced to such a ridiculous little story, a stupid or ignorant story um, carrying excessive claims about consequences. Uh, I think it is a whitewash and it not only sells the Gweagle people short, it also undersells Cook, although he could as many have shown been a blustering fool at times. So we sort of know the contours of this uh, this landing account, its repetition in visual imagery, and you can see it all here. Sometimes the men are carrying a shield and sometimes they're not. So it's the bleached out stripped back cardboard cutout fantasy that 20th century Australians inherited. And we sometimes still make the mistake to think that the story we inherited is the story of what actually happened. So although it took some time before this event was weighted with the symbolism that it carried throughout the 20th century, once it was weighted in or freighted in that way, it's been difficult to shake. The most convincing argument that I've heard about its belatedly acquired resonance in Australian 20th century or late 19th uh, and, early, and 20th century historical consciousness was um, that it worked as a screen memory eclipsing a violent, brutal, traumatic and protracted history in which new settlers fought Indigenous owners for possession of the land. That conquest history was replaced with and eclipsed by this simple story about stepping ashore after lunch one afternoon and assuming possession in a clean uh, and benign way. That is a false story on so many levels. But of course, we also all know there's been quite a lot of pushback against this and particularly over last 50 or so years, the very powerful retellings by Aboriginal people uh, in epic oral histories, such as those recorded by uh, Hobbles Danyari and in art and film and so on, and that continues. All of that work, that very creative work, has laid bare its flim flimsy foundations. And there's also, I think, been a recent push by historians and others to engage with Cook's history differently to try and sever it as, as much as possible from the myth-making, to provide more expansive interpretations, to rethink its parameters, and to consider forces other than British firepower that influence sort of what happened uh, there in Botany Bay, Kame um, in 1770 as well, I think very powerfully, um, the retellings that are happening around Endeavour River. But my experience having worked on this theme now for a very long time is to struggle to get beyond that powerful and, and entrenched account of a violent encounter on the beach where the British with more powerful ammunition fired their way into the territory of defenceless Indigenous people. That reductive account needs to shift and something else, perhaps something closer to the truth, needs to emerge in its place. But perhaps just as those other interpretive possibilities were opening up, we and I include myself here, were romanced by an object, a shield that might possibly, but not certainly have been the one used in the episode at Botany Bay in 1770. And this is where I'll start my second story. Although the existence of this shield in the collections of the British Museum has been known for some time and that there's been the possibility of a potential but not proven connection to the violent uh, encounter on the beach at Botany Bay in 1770. It was only gradually becoming public knowledge 
and increasingly famous really in the opening decade of the 21st century. So here I want to um, tell a parallel story about an object, to tell an object story of what is often referred to as an object biography. And to focus on the ways in which it gradually moved, I think, from obscurity and to iconicity, which is, a, again, another loaded term, but perhaps um, applicable in this case. It has acquired something like the status of a relic. Indeed, a mark of its fame is the title uh, that, was, that was given for this talk, the Guigul Shield. Uh, it now is an object that has a name. And uh, listen, Bolton suggests that uh, famous objects are set apart by having a name, even if they are more often than not uh, misnomers rather than accurate descriptions. So while now known as the Guigal Shield, for a long time, not only did it not have a name, neither did it have any record or documentation about where it came from and how it ended up in the British Museum's collections. And it also did not have a number, and so was eventually given a Q number in 1978, with, with the Q standing, I think, for query. A whole host of objects were given Q numbers at the same time. The process of the shield gradually becoming better known and more closely associated with Cook cannot be divorced as, uh, from the changes in Australian historical consciousness and historical practice. Gay Scolthorpe and I had traced some of this in our article in Australian Historical Studies, which was published in 2018. And, but all I want to do here is simply summarise that we identified really sort of three or four phases um, in that process in which the shield became better and better known, beginning with some early research and interest in it on the part of Australian researchers in the 1960s. Beginning with some early research and interest in it on the part of Australian researchers in the 1960s and continuing with its exhibition in various ways since then. So if we go from that, there's a kind of a, a period in which the shield is exhibited in uh, Britain, not very often, but I think the kind of a turning point here is 2003 when the shield goes on permanent display in the British Museum's New Enlightenment Gallery. And I think there's a really interesting um, kind of conjunction here. So 1770, a kind of uh, an enlightenment moment, 2003, a kind of reconstruction of what uh, an enlightenment uh, gallery might look like. As Lisa Bolton, she notes the processes by which certain objects are given value is increasingly a dialogical or, negoti or negotiated one between museums and their curators and their audience. She says, exhibiting collections is a process of obtaining wider agreement to the attribution of subjective value. Making a collection is usually the responsibility of curators. Their decisions often rest on academic understandings of the collection subject area of Australian history, say. Subjective value in museum collection making is generally constituted by the agreed principles of the relevant discipline. At the beginning of the 21st century, Exhibiting a collection requires a quite different construction of value, which is to say that enough members of the public have to agree or have to be persuaded that the objects on display are worth seeing to make the exhibition feasible. So she's talking about sort of temporary exhibitions, but I think some of what she says um, is applicable to objects already in museum collections and the decision about when and under what conditions they might come uh, into 
temporary or permanent uh, display. She's considering this particularly in relation to the use of Cook as a, as a mediating figure um, to, to sort of get that agreement, I suppose, from members of the public that this is something worth seeing. And Cook, she points out as a celebrity, what she calls a familiar stranger, is a person who can help to connect the dots, is a name, a very recognisable name, which is mobilised to convince members of the public that an object has significance. So as I've already mentioned, the turning point in the recent history of the shield was not only uh, what was the curatorial decision to include it in the British Museum's New Enlightenment Gallery, and here it is, uh, which began in 2003, and which, as I already suggested, is a very interesting space which needs to be considered a kind of artificial um, uh, space, but a curatorial sort of experiment, I think, that tries to consider the legacies um, of the Enlightenment origins of the museum and also to sort of push them. And so uh, to uh, exhibit the shield, I think, is a curatorial intervention. To exhibit it in connection with Cook uh, is another uh, experiment which we may want to consider whether it was um, that successful. The label that accompanied it, uh, it says it represents the moment of first contact between the British and Aboriginal Australians at Botany Bay when James Cook and his men tried to land, two men of the Gweagle people came forward with spears. Cook fired musket shot and hit a man who then grabbed what was likely this shield in defence. As the wounded man retreated, the shield was dropped on the beach. First contacts in the Pacific were often tense and violent. So that might have been where things remained, but since then the shield has been taken up in increasingly um, public and broader ways with, with its inclusion in the history of the world in 100 objects in 2010 and the twin exhibitions, Indigenous Australia Enduring Civilization at the British Museum uh, and Encounters at the National Museum of Australia in 2015 uh, and 2016. Although some curators within both organisations as well as communi community people with whom they were in dialogue, might have been expressing some reservations. The pull of the narrative and the possible connection to Cook was, it appears, too strong. Here then, I think we have uh, come to a parallel with the storytelling about the landing event. Over time, as the shield became increasingly public and entangled in a single and singular story, all of the complexity and uncertainty, the contradictions, contingencies and, and ambivalences fell away. And a process of narrative accrual, we might say, took over. Little qualifying words and phrases believed to be possibly likely that were supposed to keep in check uh, our imaginations lost their force or completely dropped out. An agreed upon narrative and interpretation emerged and the shield, as uh, Gay and I suggest, became the perfect prop for the never ending story about Cook's crimes and the ongoing injustices he is said to inaugurate to have inaugurated. And so now, and this has been true since 2016, when even more discussion and debate about the shield has taken place, we're often taken back to that 1770 episode uh, and the renditions of it as decisively violent and consequential in a way that I think keeps fairly close to settler colonial myth-making that we might have hoped uh, to have rejected and transcended. And I think there's some parallel work going on here. For instance, I was interested in the article that Bayan Atwood recently published in Inside Story, in which he was trying to revisit 
uh, Cook's um, active position on, uh, on the island he called Possession Island before he sailed away from the Australian coast. And Atwood was um, advocating that Cook needs to be jettisoned completely from our understandings of why the British colonised Indigenous Australia uh, with no treaties whatsoever. So it might be time to give Cook up altogether, but here we are in 2020 still engaging uh, and engaging uh, in a situation, some of it, which is of our own making. And uh, I have a number of mere culpa moments. So as most of you will know, the situation now for good or bad turns more explicitly to the question of provenance as repatriation of the shield is pursued. It has become a political project, a political object, with many politicians and activists and journalists and various others um, coming on board. And like any political project, there's a wide range of competing interests and impulses motivating various groups and individuals, some of who have quite different responses and had quite different responses when seeing the shield in Canberra for the first time. What is it? about being in the presence of objects to produce emotions, the feelings of either connection or disconnection that erupt or bubble to the surface, the force of things to move us in ways that we don't always anticipate. So it is on the public record, of course, that Rodney Kelly's uh, response to seeing it was a strong and, and has been a sustaining desire to have the shield returned to Australia. Shane Williams feeling, uh, by contrast, was uncertainty a lack of feeling or recognition actually, which prompted uh, him to make an immediate request for the British Museum to do further research uh, to ensure that the shield in question came from Gweagle country. And the preliminary findings are presented. <laughs> I sound like all I do is promote gain my article, but uh, uh, the preliminary findings are in that uh, article. So we've, we're now in a period of quite a lot of debate and discussion, a lot of publication, and I've just listed uh, some of it there. And what I think uh, that's all right for analysis. I think some of what's interesting there is it's been taken up as a sort of law story, a legal object. Um, um, we've got um, books by Jeffrey uh, Robertson. It's you know very much embedded, of course, in what's going on in Europe with decolonizing. Uh, museums and also the call for repatriation more broadly. So since then, our processes, and I'm speaking here about Gay and myself, as well as Nicholas Thomas, who was doing some research independently and various others, but our processes for doing that commissioned research, the request from the La Perouse Local Aboriginal Land Council into various aspects of the shield, almost everything about the shield is contested, says Emma Yandel into various aspects such as what made the hole in the middle, what wood is it made from, how did it come into the BM, what other shields like it exist and does it match up with the visual and written archive. That research has been both condemned I think and praised. Whatever the view, the work of inquiry and interpretation is I would say incomplete, provisional and ongoing as it should be and as it often is for many objects, not ones uh, as as kind of uh, contested as this one. But we are well aware too that whatever we conclude, it might make very little difference to the force and power and influence of this singular object, which has already, I think, well eclipsed its historical particularities. 
and which is why we consider it as a sticky object, borrowing from Sarah Ahmed's work on stickiness. Um, both an object which I think is a magnet for or a canvas for or desires and projections and which is stuck in some ways. Monumentally difficult to shift now, but it has inserted, been inserted or inserted itself, depends on what you think about what objects do, into a story that itself is also well rusted on in an Australian historical imagination that refuses to budge. It's a story that we uh, keep returning to um, and taking um, conventional sort of interpretations of it for granted. But I want to end on a kind of more positive note. But I think there, I think there are sort of promising ways in which uh, the shield and the history of Cook is being reinterpreted. And one of those uh, promising uh, signs, I think, is this, this turn to look uh, also at the spheres, the four objects that we know uh, for certain were taken from uh, Botany Bay on that fateful day in 1770 when Banks convinces Cook, I think, to confiscate them for fear that they are poisoned, and four of them now in the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology in Cambridge, where um, many people continue to go and visit and study them. But to bring us full circle to the installation, which is in Cook exhibition currently on at the National Museum of Australia, in which Rod Mason from La Perouse has made uh, multiple spheres, showing a practice which is uh, which has continued and is continuing. And if you look closely in that photo, you can see that two of the spheres uh, from Cambridge are there as well behind a glass screen, but it's really uh, the 20 or so contemporary spheres that take uh, center uh, stage in that exhibition. <laughs>